This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And in this surprise round, we're going back to Exandria as we give our first impressions of Critical Role, Call of the Netherdeep. But do not worry, I am not flying solo in this episode. With me is the wisest sage I could find anywhere in Wildmount, Brandis Stoddard. Howdy. Welcome back, That's a, that's a really tall like, praise. I feel a little, mm. oof, goodness, a little heartburn. I mean, it's it's possible I didn't look very hard in, throughout Wildmount. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a dangerous place. That's more correct, yeah. <laughs> also with us is Ismail Alvarez, uh, the Tome Show social media manager and the spirit that haunts Kale Marrow. Or Morrow? However it's said. <laughs> Hello. All right. In this episode, we are discussing Critical Role, Call of the Netherdeep. Netherdeep is the latest D&D adventure made for characters of level 3 to 12 and set in the world of Critical Role, which is called Exandria. As a reminder, in Surprise Round episodes, we get our first impressions of a book out very quickly after the book is released, sometimes before, when Brandis can find his book, uh, with the understanding that we probably haven't done a deep read-through, and we definitely haven't played it at this point. It's a brand new book, and there hasn't been time for that. We're just giving you first impressions. But then, if needed, we will come back and revisit the book later, after it's been out for a while, sometimes after it's been out for a year or two or more, and really dig in deeper with people who have run through the adventure um, and can speak about it in depth and with detail. Before we get too far, though, I want to remind folks that if you want to support the show, you can come to the Patreon, become a patron at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. The support of patrons help me pay the bills and keep the show going. Now let's talk about Call of the Netherdeep. In the interest of full disclosure, I am working from a review copy, uh, and I believe Brandis is as well. Yes. Whereas Ish has purchased his on DMD Beyond, so he's got his digital copy uh, the honest way. Through through hard work and 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 paying money, I, yeah. I want to emphasize these are not ripped off copies. They sent it sent them to us like legally through the mail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Yeah. These they are review copies, preview copies sent to us by Wizards of the Coast. Um, we got it. I don't know when did we get it. Last week Thursday or Friday? I think we got ours around the same time. So we had a little bit of a of a lead time on this one. We didn't have too long of a lead time. Um, sometimes we get a little bit more, but um, such is the the world of modern day supply chain and shipping that that things take the time that they take. So let's talk about this adventure. Um, and I want to start off just generally. What is the story of this book? So the the core story of the book uh, seems to be um, delving into the deep past of Exandria, which has been a, a major part of uh, the the campaign so far of, of Critical Role, uh, and this is trying to give you some of that experience of delving into the deep past of. Uh, Engaging with the story of the conflict between the gods in um, Exandria's history. 
And, speaking uh, of, of, though, it may be worth asking, what is each of our sort of experiences with the world of Critical Role and, and the sure. stories of those campaigns that have been told? Uh, uh, sure. Go ahead, yeah. Brandis, you start. Well, so so my experience with Critical Role is that I am caught up on the show. I only listen to it in podcast form. Right um, I own a copy of Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. I do not own a copy of either of the Talleray books. That's not an um, active choice. Just I haven't, I haven't bought it. Okay. <laughs> They're given to me free as review copies, so I don't sure. have them. <laughs> Ish, what about you? Uh, so um, I, for a long time, I kept uh, Critical Role kind of at arm's length, one of those things where it's like it's so popular, it makes me not want to experience it. But um, I finally caved into peer pressure, and I had a lot of friends who were basically always talking about it. So now I'm doing what the cool kids do, and I um, have been catching up. Like I, it, I made a big concerted effort of catching up on Campaign 3. Okay. Uh, in doing so, they've got those like really cool clips that kind of catch you up on what happened on Campaign 2. Uh, and so I'm caught up there. I also do own... The original Taldori book that was put out by Green Ronin, the uh, Exandria, and now the um, now the new book that just came out, uh, and uh, they, they're all cool. I like. I'm, I have a very favorable view of Critical Role, which mm-hmm. is not a, a among some of my friend, friend group. That's not a popular stance to take, but you know, I, I've grown to really like it. Good, right on. Yeah. So for me, um, I also enjoy the the story only through podcast form like brandis although i am not nearly as uh, adept at keeping up as as brandis is um about the time that they started campaign two i started listening to campaign one um <laughs> i completely got done with campaign one i got part way into campaign two but not very far like they've maybe leveled up twice uh, so I'm not very far into, into campaign two at all. And I haven't gotten back to it in, in months. I've just had other things, other priorities going on. I've been doing a re-listen of all the Dresden files books. And I think that's worth time as well. Uh, you know, so, so yeah, so I'm way, way, way behind. Um, and I also have the, uh, Green Ronin Taldori book. I have the Wildmount book. I don't think I paid for either of those. Both of those were review copies. But I've enjoyed a lot of the things out of them. I have uh, – in almost every major campaign that I've run of D&D, I have stolen a bunch of ideas out of that original Taltori book and, and used them uh, thoroughly uh, and happily. Um, so, yeah. So I've got no um, – I have I have a generally favorable look at uh, – or outlook on, on Critical Role. Um, but I haven't – prioritized it i guess is is where i'm at uh the new taldori reborn book intrigues me um i also went to go and see about buying myself a copy of it since i've enjoyed the other uh the other one right and discovered that at least at that time there was no way to just get the pdf you got the pdf if you bought the hardbound book and i didn't want to pay that much for a setting book that i probably wasn't going to actually run it so Someday, if they make a uh, make it available to just buy the the PDF, then I'll I'll probably pick that one up too. So, so there we are. But I think that's relevant because I was about to ask a question, and I realized 
how much familiarity we have with the campaign that they're the campaigns that they've run matters um, to my question. Because Brandis, you mentioned that the story of Call of the Netherdeep is heavily entrenched in sort of the ancient history of the world. Right. And I'm curious how much of that information is known through the campaign. Uh, I mean, so the, the parts of this that I have something to plug into that, that, that like I have any foundation for certainly come from like Matt's lore dumps in the show. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there is still a lot of stuff here that like, Oh, right. He mentioned that one time and then it didn't just didn't come up again. Like, um, uh, Ruidus, uh, mm-hmm. the the moon of ill omen the, the like has gotten name checked whenever the PCs ask how many moons Exandria has mm-hmm. right he he does not fail to mention it they don't care very often it doesn't okay. matter very often but you know uh, so I imagine it, the story of of Elixian who is sort of the the central legendary figure of the story. Elixian the Apothean, if yeah, I remember the, the name right? That's not, that's not something that's, that's not ever a thing. Any, okay. That, that's fully new. Yeah. At least well, to me. If it's ever gotten name-checked, I haven't known about it. When I, when I play-tested it, uh, I, I kind of talked through with my players. Like, this is kind of what's going on and what's happening. And, and I don't know if any of this stuff is p- things you're familiar with because some of my players are up to date on Critical Role. Uh, and they were all like, nope, nope. We've never heard anything about any of that. That's all new to us. Yeah, no. so. um, and there's... Uh, references to the betrayer gods and the prime deities right. and their conflicts and that's all throughout right the show especially uh, first campaign mm-hmm. a really really important deal um, and so that that's getting like, discussed a lot okay. um, also like the places the adventure goes are very key locations from um the, f- the first two campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's time in Bazazan, there's time in Ankaral. Those are both familiar locations okay. in, in the two campaigns. See, I and only knew Ankaral, so, but that's because I'm not up to date on campaign two. Right. So, so I think that getting to visit those locations, if you're, if you're already a fan and have listened to the first two campaigns, that's going to matter to you a lot. Okay. Right. Um, that's going to be a fun chance to see things that are name checked in the show. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about how the story is really rooted in this, the, the, this ancient lore of the world. Right. Uh, And, and I had sort of alluded that it's, it's connected to um, Elixian, the Apothean, this sort of legendary hero that was born under the, the ill, the, the moon of ill omen Ruidus, uh, but became this great hero, um, and and was he was he was like the the he's basically like the chosen of three gods, wasn't that sort of the deal? Uh, right, I believe so. Yeah, sounds right. Uh, and then was struck down by the spear a spear from Grumsh, um, which basically turned the land around Ankarel into the desert that it is and destroyed an elven city that now is in ruins under the city of Ankarel 
to everyone's shock and surprise, right? Is that more or less the the backstory? Did I miss anything? Uh, you know, you're you're already doing better than I can uh, at the moment. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but no, that was that was definitely what I got out of it as well. Okay, so like a real creation myth. Yeah. So the story starts and 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 the story starts in a small town uh, in Wildmount. Um. And it starts at like a carnival festival or whatever. And they're playing some games and winning some medals and whatever. And then there's sort of a final um, competition that they're, the, the hero's party and this rival party sort of go after the, the jewel that has been sunk in the, in the caverns nearby. Um, and in the process of, of recovering that, it is un- some, some other major artifact uh, that belonged to elixian is found and then that sort of sets them on their the the larger quest um i had a few questions first of all um we just recently had um wild beyond the Witchlight, which starts with a carnival and playing a bunch of carnival games and does it pretty fantastically uh is it too soon to be doing that opening for an adventure again I think it it really stands as a pretty classic opening for longer adventures. Um, that you know, so, some kind of a circus comes to town is it's what is how uh, the second campaign of Critical Role opens for sure. Mm. That's true. I've I've at least listened to that much. <laughs> so. What do you think, Ish? Is it, is it too soon to be jumping back into a, a festival at the beginning of, of uh, a campaign? I, I, I think festivals tend to be pretty popular, uh, running a lot of Adventures League. Um, there was a moment where it felt like every other adventure was like, you're at a festival, here's carnival games. And some did it well, some did not. Mm. Uh, but that kind of, for a while, felt like the you're all in a tavern Um <laughs> Because it was right. just that tropey, but um, I mean, I don't think the focus is here the way that it is in uh, Witchlight, I, and I think it's fine for what it is. But um, I have I have issues with that as well because they, they like all of the promotion and marketing and whatever focuses on the carnival and Witchlight. You're right, but it's only one of the five chapters of the story, <laughs> so. right? Uh, I think it's a, a classic kind of opening because it gives you a uh, st- you know, stakes you care about but aren't deadly. Tutorial mode, right? You get mm-hmm. to be introduced to the characters and see them do stuff, okay. but their deaths aren't on the line. So it's a way to get past the very lethal first and second level into the action. And that, that's my read on why it's a classic. One of the the interesting things about that you talk about it as being sort of the tutorial. And it's not just a tutorial in as much as it gets you through the first level of, of the game where player characters are particularly squishy. Um, but it's also, in this case, it also plays the role of a tutorial because it introduces you to this rival adventuring party that's going to be there side by side with you through the entire campaign. Um, it also concludes with this going down into the tunnels and dealing with 
water combat and and what have you as well, which is going to be a theme towards the end of the campaign. So um, I suppose it does a nice job of introducing these two sort of things that define what makes, or at least two of the things that define how how this adventure is is unique. Uh, is that it does more water-based combat and this has this rivals thing, right? I remember when I mean, yet last week when uh, preview copies were showing up for people and there were questions all over the internet. Oh, I want to know about this. I want to know about that. The only thing I saw people talking about th- for this book, usually it's all over the place. People want to know all kinds of things, right? But for this book, the only thing I saw people wanting to know about for this adventure was so. What do they do with water combat? Because what's in the DMG is not very satisfying, right? And yeah. and, and uh, as I looked through the the adventure, first of all, so far as I can tell, what they do in, for water combat is point you to the rules that are already in the DMG. So if you don't like the yes. DMG rules, too bad. Those are the rules. <laughs> uh, yep. Uh, the 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 thing that I thought was a missed thing is that i th- i think what's more interesting is how they integrate this idea of a rival adventuring party through the whole thing um now i'm yep. not saying it's particularly good but it's more interesting in terms of a mechanic and an element of the story um so i'm curious what you think of the the rivals system I, or process that they use i think in the context of the starting at a carnival having another group to compare yourselves to as you win or lose at the Mm -hmm. carnival games is a fantastic idea uh, because that will set a lot of the tone of like, okay, I really hate that guy because he won that giant teddy bear or whatever. Um, Or even just like being able to laugh at the other group if they like totally flub it. And it's just a little, at least a little bit more novel than just having the group go through and be like, I'm going to do this carnival game until I win, you know, the end because uh, I've, I've run those games where it just feels like, well, do you do you want to you know do the strength test again? And it just doesn't feel as exciting. But when you've got someone else there, like I can't tell you how many tavern-based adventure you know beginnings will eventually devolve into like a series of arm wrestling contests because that's really exciting uh, for some yeah. reason that I have not figured out yet. Um, my my feeling about it is that. Like a rival adventuring party is another of the great classics of all of gaming. You know, th- there's really not going to be an opponent more able to hit you where it hurts than people who are your equals in in the narrative and the concept. Also, they're not behind you in action economy, and that's pretty important, right? Like one of the reasons you beat the dragon is that you have a better action economy. Um, but, um, also it really fits with how Matt ran the second campaign of critical role, like an enemy adventuring party that they engage with. And sometimes it's sort of working together and then very suddenly it's not kind of thing Mm -hmm. is, is a big part of late campaign two. Well, and they they. What's interesting with this, like I, I think there's a few things going on. One, the rivals are not necessarily 
the evil adventuring party and they're not necessarily bad people and they're not necessarily your enemies they're just your rivals your their competition um it, it, it necessarily now they could become enemies right they're, they they throughout the adventure there's opportunities to do things that would either make them more friendly towards you or less friendly towards you um both as a group and it, it, with individual members of the rival party um, right. I, I really like the fact that it's not foreordained. Right. Um, I think that's interesting and well done. I think the other thing that's interesting about the way it works here is that the rivals are with you in chapter one, and they kind of stay with you through almost the entire adventure. Uh, they're always around. It's not like that you have this this instance with them in chapter one and then they go away for a while and then they come back you know it's not like a recurring group of rivals that keep coming back over and over again they're just kind of around the whole time you're there uh they definitely seem to like a lot of people will talk about a dmpc Mm -hmm. this is a dm party it's kind of funny um, and in, maybe in the best way that it can be in, implemented, the idea is that they will come in if the group gets stuck. They will kind of shake things up if they need to be shaken up. They'll they'll kind they're kind of meant to uh, break up the monotony of just like you know the procedural adventure. Uh, but I think they do. Uh, I think they do a good job of of like at least implementing it. Now, whether or not that comes out in play. Uh, is kind of difficult because uh, you won't know. Like, it, let's just say you're a novice uh, dungeon master. I mean, I don't. This isn't to like shame any any new uh, style, but it, like, it'd be really easy to either be very overbearing or be mm-hmm. too light with the use of them. Uh, so, I, I guess what I don't know is what the guidance is in like the chapter by chapter of how to use them and how not to like go too far in either direction. Well, it, there's, there's a few interesting things you 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 bring up there um first of all the idea of does this is, does this add extra challenge for for the dm because one of the things i dislike the most about out of the abyss for example is too many npcs to run right you basically yes. have a, a party of npcs with you from level one right uh and then through the first half of that adventure then you get rid of them slowly along the way and you pick up a whole new party of npcs to take with you for the second half of the adventure and as a dm i just get exhausted trying to make all of those npcs interesting all the time um so that's a concern i have with running the rivals uh you know sure it's only five of them but it's five of them plus the rest of the world uh that's a lot of npcs and and five of them are there all the time uh, and I've, I, and because they're there all the time, I really need them to have a, a, a strong sense of personality and a voice for them that I don't necessarily need for the, the, the king that they meet the one time that, that is the quest giver. And then you might run into him again at the end to get the reward, right? Um, that's a different level of dedication that I need to, to have. Um, you, other- you definitely need to be able to sell their dynamic. Yeah. For sure. Not just, they're like not just each individual dynamic with the PCs, but they're dynamic with each other. And I mean, the best I can say as advice for that is to cut out some time to go listen to Matt do it in campaign campaign two. Like, I don't want to say be Matt Mercer, but studying how someone else does it is as good as you can get. 
you know. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. Not really giving that advice to you, Jeff. Well, to the audience broadly. Right. No, and I think that, and I think that's fair. Um, I also feel like as a DM, one of the things I most dislike doing that sometimes I have to do is role playing with myself. Uh, and it seems like yeah, this, sure. th- this creates way too many opportunities for me to role play with myself, you know. Um, the other thing that that you brought up, Ish, was um, the idea of the help the, than the guidance that is given along the way. And one of the things that has slowly crept into recent uh, Wizards adventures, I think, is more attempts to provide that guidance. I know there has been um, there has been feedback from people like uh, our very own Sam Dillon on a fairly regular basis about um, the, you know they ne- needed more of these little sidebars to explain like if this happens this or this is why this thing is this way so that you can you can adjust or change things or whatever. I, I'm seeing slowly more of that and I'm seeing more of it in this book than I've seen in I don't know maybe all the others that I that, that they've published so far so I feel like they're trying to work on that angle a little bit to the degree that I think there's enough guidance in this book that it wouldn't be a horrible adventure for a first-time DM if you're going to pick up any of them this one seems as good as any to, to pick up and run as a first-time DM it feels very kind with the sidebars mm-hmm um, there's a lot of really neat stuff that I noticed where they'll introduce a new idea, they'll new- introduce a new, like, I-, I don't want to say new race, but they'll just say, hey, this is what it means to be a furbolg in this setting, and mm-hmm. so on. Just like in these little chunks. And I think it does a really good job of, it be, let's just say it's it's a lot more readable than a lot of the earlier campaigns where maybe the guidance was there, but it's like all in an appendix somewhere. And it doesn't make sense to read, go to the appendix, go back, read some more. Uh, and then that's not to say, or that's saying nothing of the the adventures that just didn't have the guidance at all. Right. So uh, it's funny that as we, as we review these uh, adventures, I think we've gone from, because I remember some of those early, uh, uh, those early, uh, you know, podcasts we recorded of being like, yeah, this feels like they're not, you know, they're not uh, doing this for, a new dungeon master they're expecting you to come in with some experience and to extrapolate things and to do a lot of the mm-hmm. kind of gap filling uh and i don't want to say that they listen to us specifically but it does feel like they have successively listened to a lot of feedback of this is what i want out of a book and i want it to be very uh readable because uh, i think there are a lot of people who will just buy it to read it and just have fun that with it that way but there's also the thought that if you're going to run it, you're going to want to read it t- cover to cover, as opposed to I think the old way would have been to like basically have it open like a like a, a, a reference tome uh, and just have it at the table. Um, and you can do that, but I think having it readable where you can just absorb the whole adventure and then run it is definitely the better way to do it. So I, I'm glad you brought up the Firbolg because that's a really useful touchstone for what this book means for the product line as a whole um, of, of all of D&D books because um, Morning kind of presents Monsters of the Multiverse has just come out where we see the Fearbolg without their uh, racial lore included. The, the racial lore got trimmed down to two or three paragraphs tops. Right? 
that's because the lore isn't general across all settings. Mm-hmm. So this book, for Exandria, has to tell us what Philbogs are like in Exandria. Right. Right. So I think that's uh, it's really nice to see here how they're planning to restore a sense of lore to the races. It's got to be setting by setting. Right. Well, and 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 I think there's there are settings where that is absolutely necessary, right? I think if you if you are exploring, I don't know, Spelljammer, Planescape, Dark Sun, Dragonlance, whatever, there are there are racial unique eccentricities. There we go. There's racial eccentricities to each of those settings that isn't necessarily universal. I guess Planescape and Spelljammer are a little more universal, but there's unique races there, right? Um, but like, Kinder are not halflings, you know. Uh, you know, Mole are not uh, are, are not dwarves. So, um, sure, there's there's other things that have to happen there. So. We mentioned the story starts in this in this small town they in Wildmount they find the the what is it the three something jewels the jewel of three prayers is that what it is um, which is playing off of the uh, the vestiges of divergence mechanic that Matt used back in campaign one and existed in the first Taldori book. That's one of the ideas I've ripped off several times uh, where you've got a dormant item and then through role play and story uh, uh, story sort of uh, milestones, you hit spots where it becomes awakened and then exalted and it gets sort of more powerful and, and is able to do more things over time as it does that. But in this case, um, it's it's interesting to me because like in campaign one, the vestiges of divergence were kind of a big deal, but it was also like, here's a neat thing. And, you know, to be balanced and equal, everybody gets one, right? Right. Um, this time it's, no, there's just one, and it is the impetus for the story, right? This is the thing that launches you into the campaign. And, and that's definitely a, also a good approach, a, a sort of team's magic item as opposed to an individual's magic magic item. Sure, bring it on. Uh, so they find that item um, and they take it off to what was the name of the place? You you said it earlier, Brandis. Uh, they take it to Bazozan, I believe. Yeah, they take it to Bazozan in chapter two, um, and you know they do stuff in Bazozan, which is mm-hmm. part of Jorhas. Um, and so we get to. Like, Deal with Jorhas if there's any dealing that needs to happen with just being there for your characters because it's not like the Empire. I found Chapter 2 interesting. I don't know that it was worthy of an entire chapter of its own because it's it's just the travel chapter. It's just the going from the, the small town to, to the bigger town, right? Uh, it's dangerous – um, and it's mostly just here's a bunch of random encounters, uh, and that's a whole chapter. But it's also here's a bunch of random encounters, and here's two specific encounters that you should make sure happen because they help tell the story. Um, sure. 
And I found that to be an interesting approach. Again, I'm not entirely convinced that a there needs to be a whole chapter on how you get from point A to point B. But here we are. I mean, sometimes a travel log is you know, needs to take time and space, and sometimes it doesn't. And right. I, I think in this case, it's fine for it to. I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to say it always needs to be one way or the other is what I'm trying to say. Right. Well, and, and, and I, I, that's right. I, it's interesting because you said sometimes it needs to take place and sometimes it doesn't. And in this case, it's fine, which seems to imply that in this case it doesn't. But it's fine. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to happen, but... Well, I mean, I think that they've decided to put their story there, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, Well, is what I'm saying. I don't know that... I mean, there's a couple of encounters, but I don't know that much story happens in those encounters. Um, you know. uh, fair. So, I, I mean... Yeah, go ahead, Ish. I, I would kind of argue that... And I, I mean, this isn't to say that it's good or bad, but I would argue that the rationale for it was that they really wanted to showcase the um, kind of relationship with the other adventuring party, whether it kind of, like, grows mm-hmm. hot or cold. Um, but le- that the function of the of the kind of travel time is like, all right, you're going to have to spend time with or around the other adventuring group, and like, wh- what what does that do to the um, the functioning relationship there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe if they had named the chapter "Getting to Know You," it would have been a little bit more, um, you know, uh, honest. But that 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 was what I got out of it anyway. Right. Well, and they also really want to have space for a lot of like branching possibilities in narrative around like where you are in the journey relative to the rivals. Mm-hmm. Like, like looking C- at the oh. lucky break encounter. Ranger Sierra in the chat is, is asking, uh, does the rival party have sort of a clear leader that you, the DM can focus most of the RP on them? They do have a clear leader, but I don't know that I would agree that you could just mostly focus on the leader because the the whole point of the rivals and the way they're set up is that each one is an individual and you can improve or or worsen your relationship with individuals as well as with the group they each have their own motivations there's even a little chart that has you know this is what this one wants this is what the, you know just to give you a a brief rundown of of all their motivations so i don't so there is a clear leader but i or pretty clear leader but i don't know that i would say that gets the DM off the hook of having to roleplay all of them. Uh, I think that, like, just judging by thinking about how Matt would handle it, which I I have to assume was in the the team's heads as Mm -hmm. they created all of this, like, Matt would treat it like breakout rooms, right? Uh, He would try to have encounters with not even the whole party Mm -hmm. with one or two NPCs at a time, Right. Because in the campaign, the players are completely okay with dividing the party for social scenes. You know, two or three people, maybe even just one person, goes into this social encounter. Right. Another part of the party goes into this one. And so they all get spotlight time that way. Right. And I think that he would probably say to do the same with the NPCs. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen how the, uh, the adventure uses them, but like thinking that, about how Matt would do it. Seems there's useful. definitely some of that in the in the intro, right? When you meet him at the carnival games, there's like 
a different NPC from the rival group at each carnival game, right? Uh, and you can, although some of them are at two or whatever, but but that's the the idea is though, you know, if, if I want to go play this game, I want to go play this game, then you're having those sort of spotlight time, not only for you, but specific spotlight time for those NPCs. So. Um, I want to use this moment to point out that there are some like broken aspects to the D and D beyond version of this book okay. where there's supposed to be flow charts and they don't display anything. Oh, well, oh. let me tell you a magic, uh, the magic of flow charts. Um, Flowcharts aren't necessary when they're straight lines, and there are four straight line flowcharts. <laughs> well, what kills me about that is that they do actually need a flowchart to show where things hook back up because there are meaningful branches that they could show. Right, but the, yeah, but right? the flowcharts have no branches. Um, yeah. If, if they just call them, uh, uh, I don't know, chapter summary or whatever. Progress then- chart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, oh, progress chart. Yeah, so I think those would be fine. I th- I actually found the ones. So we haven't gotten to Ancarel yet, but um, the, I found the ones in Ancarel to be useful to sort of give me a sense of what each a quick sense of what each storyline is about. Um, which is us skipping ahead. So so they're in the the Wild Mount City. Stuff happens. They they find a little bit more lore about Elixian because he's from this area originally. Um, and then, you know, through shenanigans and some encounter with a big boss person, they get teleported to Ankarel. Is that more or less how that plays out? Uh, the Ankarel section, in some ways reminds me a little bit of that chapter in Dragon Heist. The one where you have okay. all the different faction quests and whatever, and you can you pick sure. your faction and then you're given a series of tasks, and after like two or three of them, you become a member of that faction. Um, yeah. And, and in this case, I feel like the faction quests uh, storylines better connect to the larger story of the campaign, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, in each one of them, it's like, what is it, five or six different tasks? Yeah. But in each one of them, like, the, the second and or third to last ones, the last, there's, there's a few that send you down into, like, the drown, the ruins of the drowned city. The, the You know, we mentioned the earlier story that the, um, that Elixian was struck down by a spear from Grumsh and it sank an elven city. Uh, that el- the ruins of that elven city still exist in the cistern in the water below uh, Ankarel. Uh, and so one of the later story points for each faction, there's three factions. Each one of them has their own separate storyline, um, depending on which faction they decide to, to join. And But for each of them, the second to last one sends you into the, the drowned city, the drowned elven city of Kale Morrow. Um, and then the last one sends you further beyond that into the sort of uh, uh, pocket plane of the plane of water, which is the Nether Deep. Um, and so that, and so that's how it sort of ties in. It's from the Nether Deep that you you make it eventually to to finding the uh, the remains of Elixian himself and and dealing with all of that. Yep, I, I'm curious where. Where this feels like it differs from Dragon Heist to me is 
one of the things that made all the faction stuff in Dragon Heist, and the faction stuff in Dragon Heist has been appropriately critiqued. That's fine. But one of the things that you can do there and that works there is different players, different characters in the party can join different factions, and that's okay. Um, I don't know if that works here. Do any of you have a sense of that? Would it work if one player decided to join one faction and, and other players decided to join another faction? I mean, it, one would hope that you would be able to complete multiple goals in um, uh, Kale Morrow as part of those descents. But, but, but does you, it not yeah. start to feel a little formulaic when we're, we're members of different factions and all of them have us going to the same place at the same time? Um, I mean, you say formulaic, uh, maybe that gets presented as, Hey, I, I know you're already going here with your buddy, do this for me while you're there. And suddenly the formula is actually to the NPCs in character convenience. I suppose I, like, I that, that's how I'd play it. Um, I would probably say there's a lot of maybe opportunity for kind of character development and role play of like the stress that that would cause in kind of an in-character way mm. of like maybe, hey, uh, you know, how come you're not helping me with what my thing? And then kind of seeing people uh, maybe bounce off of each other as they go different ways vis-a-vis the factions, but then end up at the same place. And just seeing what that kind of does to the to the um, the to the collaborative uh, elements of that, uh, but I mean, I don't I don't know that most people would explore it that way. I don't know that everyone would really look at it in those terms. And so, again, it's one of those things. If there's guidance towards it, sure. But I think by and by and by and large, um, most people will just go with a faction and won't really. Um, well, go for that kind of option. So, I, I see elements that are that are um, interesting, but I don't know that that's what everyone's going to take out of it. Right. The text calls out not that you might have a split within the party, because I don't think it wants to even engage with the sort of risk of intra-party strife, but it imagines the party collectively joining multiple factions, either because they want to like sell one group out to the other or mm-hmm. something, right? There is a, a piece of text on joining multiple factions, but oh. that is mm-hmm. about the party collectively, right. not, you know, Alice and Bob join um, one of the factions and uh, uh, Charlie and Mike join another, and, right? And That's not it seems, thing. it seems supremely likely that in many groups that, could happen because different PCs have different motivations and different goals and people they want to team up with and whatever. So I could absolutely see it being fairly commonplace that um, party members decide they want to join different factions. I don't know that the factions are necessarily opposed to each other though. Um, It just, well, it calls out that they're secretive about things going on in Kale Morrow and the Netherdeep, whether that, it comes across as full-on mm-hmm. like competition and opposition is another matter, but um, and I suppose it, it 
like I think it's what you you can get, do two of their missions and then they ask you to join. Right. And I suppose at the point that you're asked to join, you then have to like you could do the opening missions around town for yeah. all of them, but then when you're asked to join, now you've got to make a decision because another one's not going to ask you to join if you join, you know, the the, Alli- the allegiance isn't going to ask you to join if you join to the Cobalt Soul. They don't want to risk giving up their secrets to to that other faction. Right. And, you know, one of the things that distinguishes these factions from the factions of Dragon Heist is that these three are all after pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're all scholarly lore factions mm-hmm. rather than sort of, okay, the Zentarium are a crime faction, the Lord's Alliance is a, like, uh, inter-city <laughs> uh, inter- pro-government uh, faction, the Order of the Gauntlet is a bunch of monster slaying cops, um, <laughs> and so on, right? right. Uh, where they're they all want things, but those things aren't necessarily, or, you know, orthogonal to each other. Right. The other thing that occurred to me is that it is through these faction quests that you start to get a sense of the larger threat that the campaign is really building towards. Um, you know, we've been dealing with um, um, stories of Elixian in back in Wildmount. Um, we've been dealing with, you know, what happened to him in Ankarel, but it's it's through these faction stories that I think you start to get a sense of the the what is it ruidium or whatever the the material is called that sort of infest leaking out from the nether deep and infecting people uh, and doing you know potential great harm right um, which to my mind like oh well that's that's the big threat that they need to be dealing with but you don't really get any sense of the big threat until these faction missions, which is about halfway through the story, I, I feel. Is that fair? Because I didn't I didn't I don't remember Ruidium coming up anywhere else until we started doing the faction missions. I, I certainly have not like scraped the other uh, earlier chapters to, to check for that. Oh, I'll be honest with you. I, I looked um, a little bit for it, but um, I mean, again, we haven't done a D3. The book just came out. so Right. Um, I, I thought that the Ruidium corruption effects were an, an interesting choice. Um, and I think there's a, a whole range of different levels of emphasis that a party can give the, the role play around that. The, the mechanics around it are fairly cut and dried. The there's there's still a lot of very nebulous space for how you role play the corruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's and that's more or less the story of Ankarel. Is you show up in Ankarel, you're looking around at things, you're trying to figure out where you are and what's going on, and you run into these factions, and they have this concern because Ruidium is leaking out of. Through Kalmaro, through um, out of the Nether Deep, there's the, this Ruidium sort of coming out. So, and then that becomes the larger issue, right? You you continue then learning more about Elixian and dealing with the situation with Elixian, um, 
but it's largely because, oh my gosh, this Ruidium stuff is, is leaking out and, and causing problems and we need to solve that problem. Uh, and that leads you to Kale Marrow, and then that leads you to the Nether Deep, and then eventually that leads you to um, the the prison tomb thing where Elixion has been this whole time. Elixion did not die from the the spear throw of Grumsh, uh, was not destroyed, but has been sort of imprisoned here in the whatever it's called. And ultimately, the Nether Deep is a whole demiplane unto itself that is the prison. Yeah, I suppose. But the heart of despair is where is where he's locked himself up in, which which is also an interesting bit. So, um, the 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 last chapter of the book is just basically one big encounter with Elixian. Um and Elixian has sort of wrapped himself up in in his despair, and he's turned into this big hideous monster thing and when you destroy the big hideous monster thing an angel version of elixian comes out of it and then you have but is still horrible and evil and then you have to destroy the angel version of elixian and then the human ver- old man version of elixian comes out and you have to destroy or, or defeat the human old man version of elixian but then there's this opportunity to redeem elixian you if you've learned enough of the story if you've learned enough of his lore you realize um that he is in many ways uh, a victim uh, or was a victim um and has now sort of wallowed for a very 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 long time in his own despair and it has turned him bitter and you have an opportunity to make him rethink that you know um which, which is which is interesting as well because he's been in this prison this whole time and it turns out, as I recall, to be mar- largely a prison of his own devising, right? He's been imprisoned in this place and and could leave if he felt like he was worthy of leaving. Yep. Uh, I mean, the, the similarities to the conclusion of um, Descent into Avernus sort of present themselves. Of the redemption arc, right? Yeah, it's got, the, it's got, the, a, li- it's got a little yeah. bit of descent with the redemption uh, arc. It's got a little bit of, um, it's almost got a little bit of Frost Maiden with the 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 big bad in three parts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just like uh, Zariel's position as uh, ruler of Avernus was a prison of her own making, right? Right. And, and that's sort of just the story of being in hell. It's a prison of your own making. Right. Uh, I mean, the difference there, though, is that his that um, Zeriel's other option was d- death and destruction. She mm-hmm. she was she was before Asmodeus, and she had the choice of continue this fight and become horrible, or um, stand my ground and be killed. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know th- those are th- there's a whole model of story mm-hmm. that you know, I-, I have seen and loved elsewhere as is as is this very much just mm-hmm. you get to the end of the story the the whole point of which was to try to save one person and get them to make a new choice right and yep. and I, I like and I, I love this kind of thing and I can tell you uh at least. When I it's out now, so I can talk about it. When when I play tested it, um, this is the chapter that we 
play tested uh and it worked well i mean the 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 three-part encounter it's sort of anime style aha now it's me and my it's the bad guy in his final form right um but that it worked and it played out and there's a story to each one like each one of them represents a different part of Elixian's sort of despair uh and depression um and and you defeat them and then uh Elixian is is released and and the redemption uh storyline worked i mean it even worked for for my group who didn't play through all the previous chapters and didn't have all the lore uh on who Elixian was and what was going on it still sort of had a little bit of an impact um, so I feel like, you know, it, again, it's, it's, there's these two little spots in this book where it feels like they have a very short period of time for, in terms of gameplay. And that's chapter, what, two with the travel time and, and this one where like, okay, well, you gave me a whole chapter on what's going to be one session of play. But, but I feel like if it's a big conclusion to, to a, campaign like it's probably worth it to have that kind of dedication to it um whereas you know stuff going on in Ancorel, like that's that's several sessions worth of game time you know that's that's going to be like a good month or two uh of play um in a weekly group i think and so you get a lot of a lot of bang out of that chapter one of the things you said that it, it's kind of like this anime last boss thing uh, did make me think that a lot of this adventure felt like a like a Final Fantasy game. It felt mm-hmm. like uh, like the kind of game you would play on a console where uh, you kind of go through this adventure uh, through like these fabulous vistas to unlock someone's like, you know, terrible emotional state. And then there's like this kind of procession of... Uh, uh, I guess you would say like uh, emotional exchanges that mm-hmm. that kind of save the day. That that's like an option you can take. Uh, and going into like even the the art was kind of evocative of it. It made me think of like this is a map I would see in a video game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just thinking about it this way, and like the the stages of the bosses that you would fight. Uh, it, it I I've heard. Uh, Matt Mercer talked in the past about how, like, you know, he really got weaned on um, kind of like the the role-playing computer or console games of the 90s, and this really kind of showcases that. Yeah, the the old school 90s JRPGs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did just notice a weird um, printing error in, in my copy. Um on on my page one fifty eight, something has gone very wrong with a lot of the ink. <laughs> uh, the The left hand column is close to illegible in some areas. Oh no! I thought it was that like weird stylization that they did, but you're saying it like went it bled past. No, it's it's pretty bad. Oh boy, mine's fine. That's, That's good. A bummer. This, this is probably a, a one off, like. A, printing problem that other people won't see yeah. but i mean that, that's very rare in watsy books right. overall wizards is usually really good about replacing stuff like that yeah i mean i'm not actually fussed about it to be especially honest especially when you like, didn't pay for it <laughs> well I, I, I didn't pay for it but also like if i really actually needed to use this in play i can still piece it together right you know it, it's not 
this isn't an art piece for me. This is a practical text. Right. In the old days, we'd like take a friend's copy, photocopy it, and then just like stick it in the book. Right. Yeah. Fair. Print that section off of D and D Beyond, and, and yeah, no, no, <laughs> totally. I could. That, that that's a viable in. solution. So, right on. Uh, so, any any last thoughts? We've been chatting about this for a good, I don't know, hour or so now. I, I mean, a lot of my interest in the book has been very focused on the like underwater adventuring aspect mm-hmm. that you talked about uh, because I'm in the middle of working on a book about underwater adventuring right I, I am just neck deep in this content and so it's very interesting to me that Watsi went lightest touch on mechanics you know mm-hmm. close to nothing um, and like y- you care about basically pressure and breathing mm-hmm. um I, I don't think you even care about weight all that much if yeah, i recall correctly i, I, f- I found it interesting because i feel like there was a lot of in the lead up to this book there was a lot of people asking about whether or not they made underwater adventuring better but i think the idea of what counts as better is right. highly divergent. You know, some people yeah. want more complexity, more simulation, and some people want no, no, no. I just want it to be easy and simple. You know, and right. those are two very different goals. And, and the five E style that we, we've come to expect is for them to choose easy and simple. Mm-hmm. Like get, get right to no, you can go have the adventure now, right? right? And you know, but that's something we've we've been wrestling a lot with in our work. But they didn't do that. I mean. The DMG solution isn't super simple, um, and they just sort of basically said, well, you know the rules in the DMG? The, that's how you're going to do the underwater stuff, right? Right. Um, my, my, if I'm doing a campaign where that's going to involve a lot of underwater things, you better believe there's going to be opportunities for you know rings of free movement and, and some sort of water-breathing magic to, to be yeah. readily available because I, eventually I just, you know, it'll be one of those things where like, this is kind of fun for an adventure, but for the rest of the campaign, uh, now let's just move on and get to the part where we can play the game, <laughs> you know? Sure, sure. And, you know, at this point, there's more than a few ways to uh, pick up a swimming speed. Once you have a swimming right. speed... You are off to the races and ignoring roughly half of these rules. Right. Uh, you might still need to figure out breathing, but water breathing is not hard to come by, y'all. No. Especially not if the campaign starts at third level. Right. As, as I say, that actually that actually dawned on me after we talked about the carnival or the festival being a, a tutorial to get you past those early squishy levels. It occurred to me, wait a minute, no, the adventure doesn't even start until you're third level. You're you're not that squishy anymore. <laughs> so. Have we seen that before, where we have a campaign that basically starts not at first level? Um, I mean, some of them have kind of a very filler uh, first, second, maybe oh, third, third and, and fourth. And Curse of Strahd situation. Curse of Strahd did that. Curse of Strahd. My understanding is that Storm, Storm King Thunder's intro is kind of fillery at the lowest levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't it kind of really kick off at fifth? I, I don't. I don't recall. I never ran that adventure. It, it's been a hot minute. It, uh, and, and, and and then you've got to decide how important Dragon Heist is to your Mad Mage, the adventure Mad Mage. That that's yes, for you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh huh. Yep. 
um, but I think that well, like, let's not beat around the bush. Again, descent into Avernus. What about right, it? Right, Baldur's Gate is a filler section, and everybody knows it. Wow. Like, oh, none of it. Like, sorry, it is. Like, <laughs> the adventure kicks off when you leave. Well, and that's why know. you had to solve for it when you ran it. I I think Baldur's Gate is a fine adventure on its own. That it, it is loosely, not, ti- loosely ties to Avernus. It is not crucial right. to the larger story. Sure, I'm not. It isn't that I hate that portion of the adventure. It's right. that it doesn't matter enough. We, we, we literally talked about it on behind the DM screen yesterday because Mike and I can't stop bickering about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- that you because I'm getting ready to, to run Avernus again with my adult group. Uh, that you could literally just start at fifth level and be like, okay, you were in El Torel. It got dragged into hell. Go now. You're now you're there. You know, and that could that could be the beginning of the campaign too, and it would work. Absolutely. But that's not the point. Any other last thoughts about uh, uh, Call of the Netherdeep? Uh, um, I just want to okay. say there's cool ass monsters in the end. Yeah. Uh, like the the stuff at the very end of the book. Um, there's some great stat blocks. Some amazing aberrations. Just very, could I never ever see this outside of my waking nightmares? <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of um, aquatic based because of the 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 water based right. theme of of chunks yeah, of this book. Naturally, uh, a lot of scholar NPC blocks mm-hmm. for the different factions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that the rivals uh, rather than. Handling it some other way, they basically have three different tiers of stat blocks for them. So, you know, at this point in the story, they use this stat block. At this point in the story, use that stat block. Oh wow! Yeah, I also really like the some of the stuff going on in the magic items. There's a discussion of infusing items with, with ruidium, mm-hmm. and I haven't even read the whole paragraph, and I already care about it. Yep. Yep. That sounds like a really good time. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I like that they're hooking in more to the the corruption dynamic. I'm not completely sure that um, I love how their corruption mechanics wind up working. Um, this is something I have a lot of feelings about, based on like other uses in other games. Like hooking this into the exhaustion mechanics. Ouch. My experience is that players won't adventure with any levels of exhaustion. So maybe don't use them. Well, the interesting thing that it works either way. If you gain or lose exhaustion, you'll gain corruption. Um, And it doesn't go away unless you wish it away, which it really... Uh, I was going to mention that like a lot of the, oh, you get cursed or you get madness like, out of the abyss. A lot of them are like, you get it, and then there's a really, really easy way to get rid of it. Uh, this one doesn't let you off the hook like which, that. Which I suppose means you shenanigan your way into getting some sort of what one PC manages to, sh- to, to, to get this corruption, right? Uh, it's just sort of we bumbled along and shenanigans our way all the way up to Ankarel. We did this faction thing. Oh, my gosh, somebody got infected with this corruption. Well, that's our motivation for the rest of the campaign, right? We got to resolve this thing or, or, or Jimmy's going to die. 
<laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, but I mean, so there's there's a lot of uh, magic items that are like, oh, when you use this, you're going to get infected. And I think it was at least an interesting choice. A lot of like cursed magic items are like, well, clearly I would never use that. Like I wouldn't use something that would curse me and like I would use it not knowing that it was cursed and then immediately try and get rid of it. Uh, but I think this, at least, like, the the items give you a swim speed and the ability to breathe in, breathe in water, so it makes that part of it easy. But also, um, they do some really cool things, so there's a real uh, risk management kind of thing to it, where a lot of curses are like, I would never use that. And this is more of a, I'm willing to take that risk. That was kind of what I read into the magic items that used the, the Ruidium. Uh, so, I'm just going to pick on one thing here um, I'm looking at the Ring of Red Fury and um, the uh, Rudium, oh sorry, no I'm not looking at the Rudium armor um, the, uh, it's, it's corruption mechanic uh, is a trigger that happens when you roll a 1 on a saving throw mm-hmm. I'm going to be really curious to see how that plays in the long term and whether people successfully remember that they are listening for the natural one on a saving throw trigger. My my expectation is that that will not go great. I I imagine somebody puts on that armor and I put a sticky note on the inside of my DM screen and then I still probably miss it about half the time. (laughs) There we go. That's that's the kicker. I mean, I forget to do wild magic um, checks. So, yeah, you're correct about that. That that would be difficult. Like... That, that unfortunately is the kind of listening for a trigger that video games do great and humans do really poorly. Yeah. Um, some of the other corruption triggers are perfect because they coincide with a trigger that you choose. When you do this thing, this also happens. It's stored in the same item. That's much easier to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Rudium shield... Uh, when you use a shield psychic reflection property, congratulations, perfect, love it. Um, and then the Ring of Red Fury, when you use the Iridium Rage property, yep, great. Like right. roll an additional save, cool, perfect. That's that's how it's it should be done. Right. Um, that armor is a little bit tricky. The, the armor is tricky, and the Iridium weapon is tricky because Iridium weapon is when you roll a one on attack roll. Uh, and and you know, uh, I might also like to see. Uh, is that only? This is when it's the number that plays. So, like, by the way, everyone play a halfling <laughs> <laughs> because hot damn are halflings amazing in this adventure, right? I mean, <laughs> always in those yeah, cases, exactly. right? <laughs> but, but like, uh, this is really carrying on with. Hobbits are good at resisting corruption, y'all. Oh, yeah, I suppose. Yep. Halfling divination wizards with lots of inspiration. <laughs> and the lucky feet. And the lucky feet. <laughs> yep. What's up? <laughs> yeah. I never roll a one. I'm fine. I can take this ring straight down Sauron's throat and nobody can mess with me. <laughs> right on. All right, so uh, is it safe to call that the end of the episode, or did somebody else have any uh, last thoughts? 
I just wanted to tack on one real quick thing. Uh, I'm super excited to maybe run this adventure. We'll mm-hmm. see if I get an, another oppor- like if I get an opportunity to do so. But uh, it might have sounded like when I called this like a JRPG that that was criticism. I actually really like that about this and kind of cleaving to those comments of like the uh, underwater rules being real simple and kind of the adventure moving in the direction of, okay, now you have the things that make that not matter. Um, I do think that they're playing to an audience. Uh, they're playing to critical role fans sure. uh, in particular. And that's not any judgment call on you know anyone who really likes critical role or their introduction to Dungeons & Dragons was through critical role. But I think that this is a great way to kind of move in that direction, um, get people who are maybe not as rules-oriented like into the game. Although, that being said, the rules for Underwater are still weird and murky and partially intended uh, but um <laughs> that the jrpg aspects of it are a really appealing to me just because i'm that kind of nerd and b uh that i think they do kind of move towards that sensibility of like the kind of stories that are told through critical role and hopefully encourage people to tell their own stories and not just like you know um i think we all are familiar with the matt mercer effect by this point and i I did find it interesting um and i kind of expected this to go the other way that this adventure takes and takes place entirely in wild mount and ankarel which is not uh taldore and yet the book came out like at the same time as the new Taldori book. And I thought I, I thought there would have been some attempt to to for some you know brand synergy there to to be like, hey, here's an adventure in Taldori and here's the Taldori book, you know. They're not being released by the same company, man. I, I know, I know. But they well, still could have. <laughs> I, I did want to point out that um given the the kind of um the timelines of like this book being made and campaign three being planned and played, uh, there were a few touchstones that I noticed. For instance, in um, what's the what's the city Ankh? Uh, Ankarel. Um, you do see there's like a prominent picture of the uh, headmaster, um, and uh, like the I don't know they're like the two professors. Um, James Cryan and uh, what is it, Grizz Alacritos, and they were prominently featured in Campaign Three. I want to say like two or three episodes ago, um, and I just thought that was interesting. Like they knew that the the book was going to come out about the time that those episodes was was going to come out, and I, I mean that's maybe some silly conjecture, but it's kind of interesting that there was that parallel development track. Hey, I like that. You know. Jamon Saorg gets name-checked in the chapter at length because he's such an important NPC in the first campaign. I say, as as somebody who's only finished the first campaign, um, I I anticipated that he should be there somewhere. All right, I think we're going to go ahead and every time I try to end the episode, we we find something else to sort of wander off on. Uh, But it is approaching bedtime, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. I want to thank all of our listeners for for listening and all the folks in the the stream watching us on Twitch um, and hanging out in the chat. It's been great having you all here. Uh, and thank you for those who become who are patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show, such as James Delesio, Hyperlexic, Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelche, Doug Palmer, Michael Harrison, Dave Rosser Jr., and Scipio202. I also want to thank our guest, Brandis. Where should people go on the internet if they want to find more Brandis Stoddard? 
Well, you can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is BrendaStoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brenda Stoddard. I feel like you have that more or less scripted and memorized by now because it's the same patter every time, right? I, I did make it easy on myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Ish? Where can people go if they want to hang out with more Ismail Alvarez? Yeah, so um, I'm Elvin Wizard King on Twitter and Elvin Wizard King on Twitch. Uh, my name is Ismail Alvarez, a little bit harder to spell than uh, Elvin Wizard King. But uh, that's the name I go by when I uh, publish books. And I have worked with uh, Fat Goblin Games, Legendary Games, and a number of other places. So you can find most of my works on DriveThruRPG or DMs Guild. And we didn't even mention under Brandis's that if you want really good uh, aquatic adventures, go check out Seas of Adari, which Brandis worked on. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, under the Seas of Adari will be coming out pretty soon. And was there was it a recent release, The Heroes... Uh, no, saw? that that's still in the future. That's in the future. That's a okay. it's, it's future release. I just saw it being teased. Is is what I, what I saw? Yep, uh, we we got our cover art for it. Nice. All right. Well, if you want to get a hold of the show, you can email the show at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch S Q U A C H. You can find the show. It is at the Tome Show. We have a Facebook and a Twitter and a Discord, and you can find all of those things where you find those things. Uh, and that's the end of our episode. That is our surprise round. We, we went for a swim and tried to redeem a legend as we discussed Critical Role, Call of the Netherdeep, in this episode of... I'm on the wall.